I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Hello and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup with me, Gareth Hanna, or Jonathan Bradley. Hello. And Adam Kenny. Hey guys. On today's agenda, we look back at the European defeat in Clermont, the now all-important game at home to Bath, and assess what it all means for Ulster's quarter-final fate and their chances of going even further into the European competition. We've got plenty of your listener questions to debate, so without further ado, Clermont 29, Ulster 13. So let's just go straight into what seems to have been the main talking point. Ulster were 10-3 ahead at one stage and had opportunities to increase that advantage, but after opting for the corner rather than the posts, their chances sort of passed them by. Claremont clawed their way back in with penalties between their two second half. Tries edged further and further ahead with penalties. So Jonathan, there's been a lot of debate about whether Ulster made the right decisions. I can see both sides of the argument because I think, for instance, I suppose the stat that I used to illustrate it was John Cooney's kicked more points than anybody else in Pro 14, but is only 10th in penalties made, successful penalties. Ulster are not attempting an awful lot of penalties. Going for the corner is something that they do all the time. That's not just under Ian Henderson's Mm -hmm. captaincy. It's something that goes back to really Rory Best's captaincy in the the Mm -hmm. latter half of it, which I almost put down to a change in philosophy when they beat the All Blacks in Chicago, Mm realising that they had to score tries. And there have been times over the past couple of years of the podcast where we've praised Ulster for doing that. Well, I think the Harlequins games being the main ones. in recent examples where they got the mall tries, very important mall tries by going um, going for the corner. And just I suppose another thing that I was pointing out was you can't say that you, you know you can't just add nine to their tally and say, well they would have had nine points because the game obviously plays out in a different way. Yeah. Because instead of Claremont turning the ball over in their own twenty two, there's a restart, whatever, it changes the whole path of the game so you can only really debate the philosophy rather than the (laughs) outcome of it. I think for me that's the most important thing. Ulster talked about in the build up to the game about how they had to starve Claremont of the ball, stop getting Raka, stop getting Penno time to work with the ball and get their feet moving and one of the ways to do that was kick deep force Claremont to stay in their 22 if you score and they have to kick off then that's fine because you've scored, you've put 7 points on the board but the main way to stop Claremont scoring tries was to stop Claremont getting into the right territory to score tries. So I didn't hate the tactic either. I think they were right to go for the corner on a few occasions. I think once the first few didn't quite go their way, mm-hmm. at some point they had to say to themselves that we have to take something here. And I think certainly that last one, which seemed to be the most central and the most in front of the posts in terms of kicking-wise for John Cooney to land... I think that was probably the one where they had to say that we have to at least come out of here with a positive differential mm. from the yellow card and not come away nil-nil because you saw Claremont once power came back on, their heads were up, they had mm. confidence, they took that into the break only a point down when they mm. probably should have been double figures down or somewhere around that. That I do think is, is where the game was lost for Ulster but at the same time I think if they come out after half time and if they'd done exactly the same thing by finding a way to pin Claremont back in their own 22 I think the game could have gone differently. It was the fact that through a combination of their own errors, you know, losing that scrum on their own put-in, um, it put them on the back foot, it gave Claremont field position, and on that occasion, they struck, and that was what really killed them. Mm-hmm. So you don't think, after the game, that 
Ulster might have been sort of saying uh, maybe we got those decisions wrong. Do you think there'll be any sort of change in that philosophy and and not on a week to week basis maybe, but even in any sort of specific games like going away in Europe? Well I think there is a yeah, there is a possibility that you can look at it and say the philosophy that helps us get a bonus point against a bad team here in the Pro fourteen isn't something that you can replicate away in Claremont when you need to just I suppose keep them at arm's length. But my viewpoint on it would be that Claremont weren't going to be bad for 160 minutes. So they were going to have that purple patch that they had at the very end, really, where they scored a couple tries and really edged ahead in a way where the score wasn't reflective of the game. Yeah. But more so than anything else, I would say that they lost the game because they didn't score a try after two minutes when they should have. They didn't score a try from a five-meter mall when they should have, and they could have had another one in there. So they should have had three tries, really. You know, they created three really good opportunities in the first 25 minutes and didn't take them. I agree with Adam 100%. Whenever power came back on, there was like a huge lift in the crowd and it seemed to be like a huge lift in the tempo. And another thing that people haven't really talked about is giving away silly penalties. Claremont were in the lead with 15 minutes to go, having scored one try because Ulster had given them chances, ironically enough, to kick their penalties that they did just by penalties that they shouldn't really have been giving away. It was a very high penalty count as well. Mm-hmm. Is that where we're saying it went wrong? Basically, Ulster just weren't clinical enough? Yeah, I think so. And it's a shame that it came in this game particularly yeah. because we've seen them over the last few weeks being able to pick up those bonus points and really showing an attacking edge that we didn't see at the start of the season. They slowly built on, and then all of a sudden they hit this purple patch of every time they touch the ball, they things seem to turn to gold. I mean, I wonder... Just if they put in that performance that they had against Munster in terms of offensively, how that game would have gone in Claremont. Because, I mean, we can talk about it as much as we want. You know, the different game it would have been if McCluskey goes over in that first minute, if, if McCluskey goes over whenever they make that break into the 22 again. Even in the second half, you know, just after Claremont had scored their try, Ulster made two line breaks into the 22 and then immediately spilled the ball. They then got up to the five metre line and had to take a penalty from it because Claremont infringed and they couldn't be clinical there. It was just, it was one of those games that you were almost waiting for after them being so good with ball in hand for, what was it, seven or eight weeks. You're just waiting for that one week where the pass didn't stick, where uh, the support line wasn't there, and it just so happened to be this week of all weeks, mm-hmm. and that's the most disappointing thing. You almost wish this game had come either one week early or one week late, because you would have really wanted Ulster at their clinical best going up against Claremont, because mm-hmm. then that would possibly have been a really good, uh, a really good test of where they actually are as a team. Paul McIntyre wants to know how concerned Ulster should be following the way Claremont overpowered them uh, during the second half. I think you could be concerned at the scrum. You know, Dan McFarland said it was um, inexcusable. I wouldn't be too concerned of the fact that, you know, Raka got up ahead of steam a few times because that's just something that is inevitable, as I say. He wasn't going, much like Claremont, he wasn't going to be quiet for uh, two full games. They say Billy Burns is still having nightmares about him to this day. Claremont could look at it and say, are we concerned about the way that Marcel Cotilla ran through Lopez and Parra? And at the end of the day, sometimes you get those size mismatches. I do think that Claremont have more of those powerful runners, but for me, the aspect of that that would be the concern would be the scrum rather than... Um, 
I suppose an open play. The scrum was part of a debate amongst our, our listener questions here. David Lowry sort of hones that into the tight five and highlights John Afoa leaving as maybe the start of, of that issue. Do you think that is a particular part of the scrum where there's a biggest concern? If you look at the scrum this season, now I haven't gone back through all the games to see if this is the case, but from memory I think this is the only time that Ulster have really been bested at the scrum was the two games against Claremont. I, I can't think of another game where they were completely overpowered at the scrum. And I think sometimes you come up against a guy who just knows how to find your weakness. Um, and it may just be that that combination of Falgu, Ulugia and uh, Rabbis Slimani just know how to find the weakness in an Ulster scrum. Because for the majority of this season, you can find no fault in Jack McGrath, Rob Herring and Marty Moore as a front three in terms of their scrummaging. And then whenever you put Alan O'Connor and Ian Henderson behind them even more so so it's one of those weeks where yeah you do have to look at the scrum and you have to say okay what went wrong here guys and I think especially so whenever it's against the same opposition twice but I, I wouldn't be pressing the panic button or anything like that you know well, it should be noted that Dan McFarland um, thanks to Claremont cheated the scrum yeah well I was trying to stay away from that has said so twice why yeah. he said it so it's on yeah. the record yeah very, very much so looking at Rabbis Slimani is someone who knows how to con the referee but what did Dan say about it afterwards on Saturday he said that they cheat and that it's frustrating and he's in after the first match he pinpointed Slimani and said his scrummaging tactic was illegal now a lot of people have said this about Slimani mm-hmm. um, think the change of referee made any difference to that I, I, I wouldn't put it on that because um, if what Slimani is doing is illegal at the scrum and centering on I suppose the hinge more than anything else it's not been called by any referee really mm. um, now he's, he's had some high profile games where or may, either his reputation or the referee sees it or whatever um, maybe more so than France but at the end of the day he's a very, been a very successful tight head for a long time but it's obviously something that is uh, being noted in the Ulster yeah. management room the thing is you're, you're absolutely right some refs should have picked up on it at some point like if, if he is cheating every single week one ref would have picked up on it at some point so I'm not saying he necessarily doesn't but I find it amazing that you know, so many ref- or so many coaches are saying Rabbi Slimani cheats at the scrum, and not one referee has managed to pick mm. up on this. Mm-hmm. Another issue highlighted amongst our listener questions uh, came in from James Bradley, who suggests that the reason Ulster's ceiling in Europe at the minute seems to be in a way a quarter final is that the bench doesn't offer the same impact as the likes of Saracens, Leinster, Racing, Claremont etc. Is that fair? And how long does it take to fix it? A number of years because it's building depth. Now Ulster done an awful lot to build depth compared to two or three years ago when a high ceiling of a European away quarterfinal would have been seen as something to aspire to rather mm-hmm. than something to almost take for granted. But they still don't have the depth. I wouldn't go as far as to say ETC because I think those are the teams that you're talking about. You know, <laughs> yeah. There's definitely a gap in terms of certainly the depth of Claremont, Leinster, Racing Saracens and you can maybe put Exeter in the mix but it's important to note that this will be Exeter's first ever home quarterfinal this year and they haven't made the quarterfinals since 2016 mm-hmm. so you can if you want to put them in that group but I would probably limit it to the four that James has said there and their depth is by far the best in Europe <laughs> rightly or wrongly in uh, Saracens case maybe but um, 
you have to look at it in terms of I suppose how those teams have been able to do it and the problem with I suppose a failure to develop over a number of years is that you can have a strong 15 like Ulster have had in the past and do have now but it's what's coming through beneath it so you know Leinster have Dan Levy out injured Sean O'Brien and Jordy Murphy moved on and still have Josh van der Flyer and Will O'Connors but how far away are Ulster from that because you look at the players Ulster have out surely like how, ma- how many players are you talking about extra that need to come in until Ulster have sufficient depth there? well I think it's Specialised positions are where it hurts you the most. I think you can look at Ulster's specialised positions and say they're doing well and they're a lot better than you know we would have expected them to be, say, two years ago. But they're still not at the level of the impact players that Leinster, you know, that quartet are bringing on mm. because they have international players on the bench, whereas Ulster don't. Ideally, you want to go down through your squad and you want to say have three players per position that you could put in a Champions Cup squad and mm. be pretty confident they'd do a job for you and there's still positions in Ulster squad where you'd be saying not sure about him, not sure about him if you go down through. Because if, if you look at Ulster squad, I think if you go down one player in each position, I think you'd be fairly safe in saying that you know you could put one guy in per game or a couple guys in per game and you still have a squad good enough to compete with most teams especially at, at home here at Kingspan there's you know scrum half is maybe a position fly half maybe as well but for, for the most part if you lose one guy you're going to have a competitive squad to face anyone uh, in Europe but it's whenever you then go beyond that and that's where you look at Leinster where you can you know, go all the way down through that squad and you'd be fairly confident that any of those guys could step in and do a job for you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it is still about building time. You know, there are a few guys that Ulster are going to have to add to their squad that they don't even have yet, you know, because they're either in their academy or they've got to go out and sign them. Um, the question sort of related to the bench and the impact that the bench had, I, I thought Ulster's bench was wasn't necessarily a weakness on Saturday. Mm. I thought, like, you look at Matty Ray coming on that in 14 metres and six carries. You look at uh, Matt Faddis coming on for Will Allison. I thought he looked sharp. I thought Claremont put a lot of emphasis on stopping him whenever he came on. Um, Eric O'Sullivan and Tom Wuto, we know, are very good options as backup props now as well. So, um, and they're two young options at props. So, for, from, a, from a depth perspective as a whole, I think... Ulster need to work on creating multiple options of depth. I think they've got that sort of first level of depth there. I think once they start to develop that those multiple levels of depth that you can have, say, three players in a position, you have maybe six back rowers that you're happy to rotate in and out of, of the squad. I think that's when you start to have that competition for places and you maybe see that guy in third place competing with the guy in second place for a bit more game time and then maybe pushing the guy in first. And that, that Once you've got that depth where you have a squad of around about, say... 35 players that you just know that you can rotate in and out and you're happy enough Mm. with them that's when the competition starts to build and you really start to get some top quality depth rather than just Mm. having that baseline level depth I don't know if it's as close as that to be honest like I think there's been huge strides in that but there's still a marked difference I think between Ulster and the top four teams in Europe and that's not like that's not a bad thing but you know at the end of the day the best player on the pitch on Saturday came off Claremont's bench. Mm. You know, 
to be fair, I thought he should have started. Fisher was one of their best players on the pitch, but I think he's a better player than Lapondre. I don't know why they had him starting ahead of. Well, let, let's talk quickly about John Cooney's try because it was beautiful. Beautiful work from the squad, and he ran that Dave Shanahan support line superbly once again. The most pleasing thing, I think, was it was forwards who set it yeah. up. You know, yeah. it's it's not such quick hands. it's not a brilliant flowing move where Jacob Stockdale offloads to Luke Marshall and Luke Marshall passes to Stuart McCoskey and Stuart McCoskey kicks in behind for John Cooney. It's an inside ball to Sean Reedy. Sean Reedy rides a tackle and offloads to Marty Murr and Marty Murr has the soft hands to put Cooney over under the posts. That was you know, great. That was one where like you were watching it on TV and you're like, oh, did, he, did he pass that? Yeah. yeah, like it was a super score and I think again it's testament to the work that you know, all those guys have probably mentioned Dan Super doing. My favourite part was Marty or John Cooney pushing Marty Murray in the arse to tell him where to go so that he can run <laughs> his line to give him the ball. <laughs> Which is beautiful, beautiful squad organisation from John. <laughs> um, so it all comes down now then to what is all important this Saturday afternoon, quarter past three, here, Kingspan Stadium against Bath. First up, let's sort of talk about the squad issues. We're about to obviously go into the press conference when we may or may not know a little bit more about Will Addison and Marty Moore. Even just very quickly, first impressions, any chance of either two for Saturday? I think Marty Moore will be fine. I think he said afterwards that he was going to be all right. Will Addison maybe not so much. I was on the team charter back home and he was on crutches in the airport, so... I think that's a pretty good sign yeah. that he's not going to shake that off for next week. Um, as you said, Marty was walking around right. fine. Right. So so Will Addison could be out, which brings us neatly on to Ian Frizzell's question. If, indeed, Addison does not make it, what would your back three be this weekend? I'd go move Stockdale to fullback and bring Gilroy on in the wing. No, I'd, I'd put I'd put Faddis in. Maybe on the... I would agree with you, put Stockdale at fullback and put Faddis on the wing, but I'd prefer to have Faddis there. Ian himself went for yeah what you said actually but Jonathan Stockdale doing yeah I appreciate sorry, Stockdale looking at you to address that when I said <laughs> you there isn't great for listeners um, so any other changes to the squad we can foresee this weekend or could it be a sort of fairly off you go again boys there could be there could be you know the usual minimal ones you know something like Kieran Treadwell rotating in for Alan O'Connor might have Matty Ray rotating into the back row but for the most part like, I think you want to put out as similar a side as possible because these guys are hurting You know, like mm. that's a team that have won 7 out of 8 going into that Claremont game and the vast majority of them didn't play that game down in the RDS so effectively most of those guys were coming off a 7 game winning streak with Ulster and to go in there into a game that they had genuine aspirations of winning that in previous years they wouldn't have and to be beaten by 16 points when the game itself didn't really reflect that their pride is going to be really hurt and I think putting everything on the line where you know your quarterfinal aspirations rest in a win this weekend where you know in order to continue this progression that the team is on, you have to make it to the last eight. I think these guys know exactly what needs to be done. So I think you you roll out the same guys again. You say that prove that last week was a was an aberration. Bear in mind that the team know that that wasn't them. That lack of clinicality in in the stab Marcel Michelin was not them. That's not what we've seen from them over the last few weeks. So they'll definitely want to prove a point. 
Ulster aren't going to have any problems, really, are they? Regardless of whether they make a couple of changes or not. They shouldn't do. Um, I don't think the Claremont game was anywhere near as bad as other people do. I don't think it was a bad performance. I think it just turned on three moments mm-hmm. when they should have scored and didn't. Bath have lost five games in this competition. They've got a huge game against Leicester. Coming up the week after, they sent a much or played a much-changed team against Harlequins last week, mm-hmm. so they're not going to change that this week. And no. there's really no reason why it shouldn't be five points, five points wrapped up. Very not early, not yeah. long after half time. Yeah. yeah, you would imagine so. I'm glad, just as an aside, to hear that you're both saying Claremont because all the broadcasters over the weekend seem to be saying Claremont. Well, they're probably right. Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. I toyed with the idea of changing it, but then I thought you'd probably laugh at me. Okay. So decided against it. I think I just like saying Claremont. I, it I, I, no, I, th- I think it is Claremont. I think it is a. Is it? Well, if you, like if, you think, French, if you think about really? Mont, Mont Blanc, mm. it is a hard yeah, Mont. So. If anybody is, uh, is fluent in French, please do let us know. Uh, it's a bit late anyway, because games are over. We're probably not going to say it again for a while, but here we go. We'll know for it again. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, the, the, hard, the hardest part was people from uh, the town call the team ASM, so uh, we're not yeah. even getting them calling uh, yeah. them Clermont uh, in the stadium. So we should just say ASM. ASM. If you want to be, yeah, if you want to be French, it doesn't matter. It's ASM. <laughs> I was the town of Clermont. We got lost whenever we first met up with each other. We didn't so much get lost, we just couldn't find anywhere to eat, which was... Yeah. No Nando's. <laughs> no Nando's. <laughs> Disappointing. I also, I also completely remembered a separate part of Clermont as being in a different part, so whenever I arrived I thought, oh I remember this place, and then suddenly discovered it wasn't the place mm-hmm. I thought it was, and that completely threw me for a loop. And the stadium lived up to all uh, its reputation. Yeah, the stadium's class, the atmosphere's class. It was actually a record car. They've been able to get some more seats in, so it was 19,000. Um, First time they've ever had 19,000 plus in, yeah. that, in that stadium. Which is a pretty big thing to be part of, like, yeah. I think. Even watching on TV, it just you were sort of struck by... that. Cause somebody said last week, didn't one of the players, that the stands just go straight yeah. up so everybody's so close. Yeah. But you could see that even on TV. Yeah, it is, weird. it is really sort of really really steep stands that are like Twickenham used to be. There's different points of atmosphere like here where you know say people would still be in the bar five minutes before kickoff or whatever. Like there's a huge cheer like like a cheer for a try when Claremont come out for their warm up, not when they go back in when they actually come out. And then the team being read out is more of a I suppose interactive thing. And then as I sort of mentioned before, the thing that got me was like power coming back on after mm-hmm. the sin bin, and then it was like celebrate like a score because yeah. well I was going to say because they hadn't conceded but they very nearly uh, scored during that period mm-hmm. if it wasn't for Rob Balogun so. so the journalists have started arriving for the press conference so the journalists they say that as if we're not journalists the rest of the journalists have started arriving for the press conference so we've been shoved outside where it is very cold so Ulster if we take it as rare that they're going to get five points this weekend and Claremont are also going to win their game which they are that leaves Ulster in sixth place going into the quarterfinals that means they will play the team round third. Now Leinster are going to win in Benetton and take first place. That leaves Racing, Exeter and Toulouse all currently level on 22 points. So two of those three teams are going to be second and third. So who's third is what we're looking to know. For all that's going on at Saracens, they don't lose home games. So that knocks Racing out unless they pull something incredible out of the bag this weekend. So therefore it's between Toulouse who are at home to Leicester this weekend, and Exeter, who are hosting La Rochelle for second and third place. Ulster are going to play the team that does less well of those two teams this weekend. <laughs> yes. Who do we think it's going to be, and who would we like it to be? 
I think it's going to be Toulouse because they're playing against a team that has something to play for. Are starting at a slight disadvantage as well, so you would say it looks possibly like it's going to be them. Like basically, Exeter are playing La Rochelle, who have not been good at any point in this competition, mm-hmm. and are facing a round six fixture with nothing on the line. So yeah. who knows who's going to play for them? So Exeter, you fancy to get a bonus point then? Yes. So that leaves Toulouse needing a bonus point and also to also, overhaul yeah. a six point uh, yeah. gap at the moment. When Exeter would not surprise you if they put 50 up yeah. on Larachelle. So I would say it's probably going to be Toulouse. The question of who we'd rather play, I think you'd rather play Exeter from a my perspective because it would just be a short trip. Typical. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, no disrespect to the Devon coastline, but I'd rather go to Toulouse in April than Exeter, <laughs> to be honest. Just, just quickly before we talk about who we like do you also agree that it's going to be Toulouse and all likelihood yeah I agree I, mean, I can't disagree with what Johnny said there um, I also think Exeter are a slightly better team than Toulouse Toulouse are probably a better home team than Exeter but I think in general I think Exeter are a better team than Toulouse so I think they'll get the bonus point I think they'll put up a pretty big score on La Rochelle who have nothing to play for so barring the enjoyability of the trip for journalists, do you feel like Exeter is a more winnable time? I feel like it would be purely because it would be new ground for Exeter. You know, they don't have the same yeah. European experience and you just wonder if you could maybe catch them on a day where it's their first ever home quarter final and the occasion just gets too big for them because teams do build and we've seen Exeter build domestically and then build into Europe and I suppose hosting a home quarter final would be seen as a sign of progression, but you just wonder if maybe there'd be more pressure on them than there would be on Toulouse. Ulster have won on Toulouse though, and there's something to be said about having the memories of having gotten a result in a ground and being able to go back and replicate that. It's not the be all and end all, but I just like the thought of Ulster going back to Toulouse somewhere where they have pulled off a result before. Quite a lot of the squad were involved in that game, so you can draw on those experiences and you're not going in completely fresh thinking, okay, we haven't done it here before, we don't know what it takes to win here, but they do in Toulouse. Well, Toulouse Fair. haven't lost in a year and a half at home, so, well, longer than that, they haven't lost since May of 2018, mm-hmm. so they don't lose a lot of games. Like they're, But you look at how Leicester have gone in those two, those last two big European away games, obviously there was Leinster and then there was Claremont who were saying they put up a decent showing against they still can, but it's just like... Uh, you're just talking about preference. Yeah. I understand. And you're also talking about it, it requiring their best performance of their season and for things to break their way. Last year, you got their best performance of the season and they still yeah. you know, yeah. they still lost. Whereas Toulouse have not been re- particularly good in the top 14 this year, but it's only been away. Whereas at home, as we say, they haven't lost in forever. Like They have a better home record than Claremont's that we talked about, you know? Yeah. At the end of the day, I still want to go to Toulouse in April, rather than down. <laughs> I feel like we're getting greedy now. Imagine even this time last year, sitting here with a game to go, talking about being fit, fussy about who we're going to play. Ulster aren't, de- being Ulster aren't even in the quarterfinals yet. We'll look pretty silly if Ulster go yeah. So, moving on a little bit to some more of our listener questions. Simon Elliott asks if losing in a way a quarterfinal can be seen as above par for last season and power this season is it realistic to expect more of next season or what do we need to do to not let big European away games slip from our hands take your chances <laughs> essentially no we talked about it is it start. realistic to expect more next season then 
to expect a But I think you can make the argument that this year's European campaign has been better than last year's European campaign because they put up a far better fight in Claremont than they did in Racing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And but if they're we're going, going to be six seed to next year. They're going to be six seed rather than the eighth seed. So I think avoiding Leinster is a huge, mm. not a huge point of progression, but a point of progression from last year to give you a better chance of winning your quarterfinal. But in terms of what you can expect next season, I'm not like avoiding the question, but you really have to wait until you see the draw because an away quarterfinal was probably seen as par once you find out that they got Claremont. Mm. Whereas when they weren't as good a team, you could have seen a possibility of a home quarterfinal, you know, when they were in the pool with La Rochelle, Exeter and Bordeaux. So it all depends on who you get and you don't really know that until June. If you end up with one of those four teams that we mentioned Mm. in your pool, then that obviously hugely limits Mm. your ability to get the home quarter. It's very rational. I think Ulster now put themselves in a position where you know, you should be going into any European pool and thinking to yourself, unless it's a complete horror pool, you should be going into any pool and thinking, you know, this team could get a quarter final out of it. Not necessarily a home quarter final, but you should be thinking that they could get to the last eight. As Johnny says, we'll have to wait until we see the pool for next season to determine, you know, what this team should be realistically aiming for going into 2020-21. But um, I think Ulster have now put themselves above that sort of bracket of teams where you think on their day they could get a few shock results and they could make their way into the knockouts. I think Ulster are now a team who genuinely should be going into the season thinking well why why shouldn't we get a, a quarter final yeah. and then you can only really aim up from there. Yeah, Which is great. So Mark Dempsey wants to talk about the scrum half position. Obviously the Six Nations is fast approaching. Ireland's squad due to be announced very soon. So if John Cooney is going to be lost to the national team, uh, Dave Shanahan, whilst improving, he says, is not somebody Ulster can put their hat on. So who would you take at scrum half in the games that John Cooney's missing? Who else would Dave Shannon's definitely like the second best scrum yeah. half. Yeah, I was just it was, I was confused when I was reading that. And he runs great support lines, so... I guess like, I mean, I, I, I've won big games with Dave Shannon, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Talks about it. They beat Rossing here with Dave Shannon, but this is what if, you, this is what sorry, quite if you're talking about in the future, perhaps because we because we had spoken about that last week. I thought it was interesting that it, one of you guys joked about Albie Matthewson being available and now he's being linked with Toulon, so <laughs> uh, to replace uh, to replace Webb. So yeah, I mean he is out there. He is available. Well, maybe we were being more prophetic than we believed we were. This is one of those questions where I, I want people to actually put their own answers to it first so we know kind of like where they're trying to go with this because in terms of the games when John Cooney's missing, who else would you turn to than Dave Shannon? Yeah. Would you turn to Johnny Stewart who's I played I assume 10 minutes? in the future like looking at John Cooney missing. I think as we talked about last week, the possibility of John Cooney missing a huge chunk of yeah, next season. season. So, Dono's question. We don't miss out on young Dono. He wants to know a little bit about the journalistic world. And they're just always assuming people don't care, but they do. What's the most awkward moment you've witnessed in a rugby press conference or just a one-on-one interview? Well, there was loads here a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not, not going to that. To avoid, I suppose, that topic, um, there's the Pro 14 launch every year, which is every coach and captain yeah. and normally a rake of Irish journalists. 
sometimes there'll not be a huge amount of interest in the entire group to talk to say the coach of a random Welsh team or the yeah. Italians so normally for instance you would get Kieran Carley and it's always Dean Budd because he speaks English so he's brought to these things okay. um, sat in a part of the room and just sort of ignored for large parts which is normally quite awkward and then you get people maybe haven't research things in the same way that they normally would or aren't just familiar with teams so we had one moment a few years ago I think where a long conversation was taking place about a winger for a Welsh team and then after three questions the coach was like you know he plays for uh, <laughs> Cardiff not the Scarlet so oh dear yeah. oh dear that's a bad one there's always the one word answers as well I've gotten one word answers I'm sure yeah. Both of you guys have gotten one word answers as well, but that my favourite one was actually somebody nodding rather than even giving a one word answer. (laughs) There's no word answer. Yeah, just that stage you need to say like for the tape he nodded. Yes, not nodding into a dictaphone to a print journalist. (laughs) Somebody that's still here, I should point out. I haven't yet had someone walk out on an interview before, but oh, no. I, I eagerly await for that to happen at some point. Probably yeah. because of a question I ask. Like, I'm just going to put that out there. Like, I can't think of any, like, just in, even in any sport they've covered, I can't think of any majorly awkward moments that I've certainly been involved in. I don't know. Maybe I should be involved in more. I've been involved in loads. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you're a wee skitter. That's probably it. <laughs> not, not so much recently, it must be said. But yeah, I'll So have they're a lot easier to avoid on the team that you're covering winning games <laughs> well absolutely exactly well for a former coach of the Belfast Giants whenever they lost games he would come out and do post-match and he'd stand there with a cap on and he would look at the ground the whole time so you were like interviewing the brim of his cap <laughs> not looking at his head you're literally like having to stick the dictaphone like under the brim of his cap just to get like the sound bites from him because you couldn't hear him. <laughs> I've got a thought of an awkward one. Whenever it was, I was involved. I was really young. I was just starting to do like a little bit of reporting there. Actually, I was probably about like seventeen, and I was doing the TV interviews for BBC and UTV. And uh, they had told me. I think it was the first time I'd done it. And they had told me, make sure you get whoever you're interviewing to say their name and role into the mic for whoever's editing it. So it was Gary Hamilton, the Glenavon manager. Now, what I should have done myself now, knowing this, I should have gone. The lab manager guy, Hamilton, what did you think of the game? I said, could you tell me your name and role, please? And then he was like, looked at me like I was a tit and went, Guy Hamilton. And I was like, and role, please? And then he was just, he's been annoyed at me ever since, I think, which is sort of fair enough. But I hear people do that all the time, and I always think that's really weird. Like when they ask the person to say their name, and I, I, sorry, I assume there is yeah. a reason for it, but it always does sound to me like they don't know the person's name. That's yeah. what I would think if I was the person. Yeah, I know that yeah, that's yeah. not the case. But bear in mind, I had known Guy Hamilton for about five years at this stage, <laughs> so he knew, I knew who he was. Anyway, so yeah, it was awkward. So Stuart Watson asks, since Saracens are having a fire sale, who would you add to the Ulster team? You can pick any one player, and this is also outside of the rules of Irish qualification, so a bit of a fantasy one any player from Saracens of the players that are rumoured to be leaving like Liam Williams is the best but Ulster probably don't need a back three player of the players that are said to be leaving George Cruz would probably be best for Ulster but if you could take anyone you'd be silly not to take Owen Farrell actually I, I completely agree with that yeah. you, you might I answered it three different ways <laughs> yeah I mean maybe Billy Van pull over Owen Farrell just to have in the back row with Marcel Katsia which would be so much fun to watch on a weekly basis but um, yeah I mean it would be I hard think, to turn down Owen Farrell yeah I think in that situation you have to take the specialist you know yeah. so a specialist position be it tight head or 10 
So I think that's what I would go yeah. for. Well, right. Juan Fagallo is rumored to be going, so there's your specialist tight head. Like. Ah, but like, you know, Marty, I just, I'm a big fan of Marty Murr, really, to be honest. <laughs> oh, we're all, we're all big fans of Marty Murr. Juan Fagallo's available, and you said mm. potentially take a specialist tight head. So that's pretty much us for this week, then. Here's hoping we'll be back next week. We will actually be back next week, even though there's no game to preview. We will. What are you looking at me like that? Well, I'm on holiday next week. Are you? Yeah. Oh, first I heard of it. Yeah. Well, we'll be back, Adam. I'll be back. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything better to do. <laughs> somebody else taking Jonathan's place, I would say. So, from this week and next week from Jonathan Bradley. Thank you very much. But for this week from Adam McCandler. Cheers, guys. And myself, Gareth Anna. Thanks for listening.